what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Glenn, Mm. we have so many new sponsors. It's unbelievable. It's very exciting. Who should we start with? Let's start with the original. The goat. The goat. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking Jason Furman. Einzer Wiener Dog Quip. The Einzer Wiener. Einswick Dog Quip. Where the fuck else would you buy your dog training equipment from? In Australia. In Australia. Yes. Yeah, where else would you get it? The goat himself. The goat. Einswick Dog Quip. Yep. Should we call him the Buffhead Goat? We could. Why not? Why not? Label him up as much as we can. Yeah. If you need any dog training equipment, the only place you should be getting it in Australia is Ironswick Dog Quip. Mm -hmm. But if you're training that dog, you're going to need to keep it healthy. Yes, you are. How on earth would someone go about doing that? The one and only Caninecuticals. What is Caninecuticals, sir? It's a great range of dog supplements. I could probably and proudly say it's close to the best that you can get. It's human-grade supplements. Mm -hmm. I know- So you can have a little taste. You can. You can have a little taste. <laughs> That's not, the best thing I, about training I'm not with gonna Devin. Actually, I'm not going to officially endorse that just in case someone does and they yeah, have, yeah. A, have a yeah. – No, but they should be able to because it's human-grade supplements and knowing my wife and what a perfectionist she is, like Narelle would literally breathe into one of those little bags if, and have a hissy fit if it wasn't close to the best that she could possibly put out. Okay. You know when people hyperventilate and they've got to hold a paper mm-hmm, bag mm-hmm, to their mouth? Mm-hmm. She would do that. Okay. So I know it's great product. It's the word canine, not K and nine. Okay. Yep. Caninecuticals.com.au. You know, one of the coolest things I think I've ever seen Mm. was many years ago Mm. when we were at the ICP conference and Horny George Kittredge showed us his prototype. He did. He did. Dog box on the back of his motorbike. He did. And his motorbike got stolen the next day. Yes, it did. Yeah, that's right. It did. (laughs) Fucking hell. Yeah. Anyway, he perfected that fucking thing. Yeah. And it's now called the Rowdy Hound brand. And he, look here. He's even got the music. Rowdy Rowdy Hound Hound motorcycle dog kennel for dogs up to 70 pounds. Mm. It actually is cool as shit. So it's like a, a cool dog box that goes on the back of your motorbike. Seals up if you need to keep the dog in there. Has a little pop open so his little cool head can stick out. It's the coolest thing I've ever seen. And we knew about it since concept. Like he told yeah. us about it on the way when he picked us up from the airport and yep. drove us out to the conference. Yep. Told us all it about it and he brought it to fruition. It's actually really cool to see that he got that to market. I love that kid. He's a good guy. Here it is. You yep. can buy it. Yep. So if you have a motorcycle and a dog, Glenn. Rowdy Hound. <laughs> Has he seen one? I can imagine you with Randy in it on the back. Oh, of imagine seat. that. <laughs> I'd go to corner and Randy would jump at something and flip me off my bike. Yeah. What I think people should do is get themselves one of those if they're mm. in America, if you ride motorcycles. Yeah. And then just drive on up to Canada. Yes. To? Dan Croft Canine. Absolutely. The best in the biz. Yeah. They're doing puppy training, dog training, merch. They've got equipment. And- if you have a look at their social media, they're absolutely social media wizards. Are they? Yeah, on Instagram. The they've best. got it. They've got they're absolutely fantastic on Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. Dancroft Canine Toronto. 
The best. The best. The best in the biz. So that's it, guys. Four sponsors. We've got the Goat, Canine Suticals, the Cool Dog Box, the Rowdy Hound Dog Box, and Dancroft Canine. Thank you very much, guys, for sponsoring Mm. the show. And if you appreciate the show, appreciate those guys. Yeah, don't skip the ads, guys. Listen to them every single time. Yeah. Like and subscribe. Yeah. Check them out. Yeah. Help them out, small businesses, and we should support our own anyway. Yeah, and we're going to record this ad every week. Every and there'll week. be very minor differences, and it's up to you to tell us what those differences are. It's a are. test. There's a test at the end of it. <laughs> There's a test at the end of the show. Make sure you study. <laughs>
And on the walk over, one of the decoys was like right in front of me and Remy was next to me in the heel, like in kind of a loose heel. And he just sort of got himself convinced that he was in a transport and he just kind of went, and it was a very similar picture to how I would transport. And he just went a little bit ahead and locked himself onto the decoy. And then that was it. He was transporting the decoy. <laughs> and so that was all fine. Cause we went over to this seat and then I had to get up and go to a separate seat and he stayed with the decoy. And it was pretty funny. Like everybody kind of remarked at the time and in the video, you could see it. I think someone live streamed it. There was no confusion from him. He was like, we got this. <laughs> like, You go with that one and I'll stay with this one. Like he was convinced that the scenario was correct. So then the second decoy came around, hit me from behind uh, and he still came running over and bit the decoy. So it all would have been fine, except that the moment that you and the dog are separated by more than 10 meters, you fail the scenario. Mm. And so that's what happened. I got more than 10 meters from him. And so he zeroed that area. I kind of expected that's what would happen or not specifically that, but that the defensive handler is what would trip us up because that's really different from PSA. And I think back when we were sort of in the level one in PSA and were interested in doing some Mondio as well, I think it would have been much easier to teach that because he was a much freer sort of dog and we hadn't had, didn't have anywhere near the level of control that I have now four years later. It was fun to trial again, for sure. But there was only one thing that happened that I was like, oh, that's surprising to me was he blew the retrieve. Not only does he love to retrieve, it's one of our like strongest exercises. I think that he didn't see what I threw. Like he didn't acknowledge that I had thrown something. I think that I brought him onto the field a little, it was like the second exercise after the food refusal. And I think that I brought him onto the field a little bit too hot. I brought his level of arousal up too high mm. to enter the field. And then the way we sort of work our retrieve is I get handed the item, I show it to him and he barks at me. And that's kind of an acknowledgement of like, yeah, I know what it is. Like that's part of the prep for the exercise. And he barked. So I threw the item and then he just was, when I told him to retrieve, he ran out and was like looking all over the place for something to retrieve. Like he missed what it was. It was a PlayStation remote. And so I think the bark was not an acknowledgement of like, yeah, I see it. I know what I'm going to retrieve. I think he just was like so high in arousal that he barked. He didn't acknowledge it. So that was 12 points gone because he didn't retrieve it at all. But that's the only place where things like where I was like, oh, that's a problem for me. Like I, I need to work on that. I and mean, I was surprised by it. He only went one way over the jump. I only let him go one way over the jump because like his body's so busted that the way he went over and landed, I just thought, nah, I'm not sending him back the other way. Like I took the half the points there and then in the change of position, he crept forward a little bit. So that cost me a couple of points. So had we been successful in the defensive handle, it would have been a pass, even having blown the retrieve and not being able to really do the jump, but we didn't. It was just not enough time to train it. It was a complicated exercise that could go a lot of different ways, mm. and we just didn't have the time to show him the pictures, and he's heavily ingrained in a different program. So anyway, it was great fun, and, and I really enjoyed doing it. It was great to hit a trial field again because we haven't done that since COVID, and I really appreciate those guys letting me do it and helping me train for it. So yeah, that's my little Mondio soiree. It's time to get back into training for PSA though. He clipped the jump pretty hard when he went over it, didn't he? Like, I just yeah. turned it on because someone messaged me and said, oh, Pat's coming on. And by the time I worked out how to view it and what was going on, I just saw him going over the jump and, like, belly flopping on top of it. Yeah, he he hit it. Didn't quite belly flop, but, yeah, he hit it pretty hard. Like, mm. he kind of doubled skipped off of it because, you know, he's got a blown ACL and it was when I had COVID. So, what, like, 10 weeks ago, broke both his legs. So like, we're only just getting back into to training. And so he's just not in a good enough condition to get over it. And his body is falling apart as it is anyway. So that was, I always knew that was going to be the limiting factor. And I think even if it had all gone super well and I wanted to progress like that, 
level one in Mondio would be my ceiling anyway, because then the jump starts going up in height and he just couldn't do higher. You're right. He just didn't understand the picture. As I said, I came into it late, but he was doing what he thought he knew was to be right, but that wasn't Mondio. Oh, yeah. And the, yeah <laughs> he was doing, he did awesome PSA. He was doing PSA. Mondial. Yeah. <laughs> I was watching him and he's looking around going, this is not quite PSA, yeah. but I'll do the PSA I know. The video is quite funny because like when he stayed with the decoy, there's no like confusion. He's looking at me like, yeah, we got this. Mm. <laughs> He's like, I stay with this one. You go with that one. Like we're killing this together. And I was like, oh, but we're not. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was it. But yeah, like I say, it was really fun. And to play a different game, it's challenging with a dog that's so ingrained in the program. And I actually would quite like to try again, but I don't want to derail him any further. It'll depend on when we can get a PSA trial going. And mm. my goal with him before he ages out is to get that PSA level two. I want that second leg really badly. And I, to do more training of that defensive handler would make it much more difficult and unlikely for me to pass that PSA level two, the second leg. So, mm. you know, I've got to kind of figure out his career and the likelihood of being able to have trials and timings and all that kind of stuff. But that's a problem for the future. There was one stage where I was really hell bent on looking, getting into the level two with Randy and I kind of derailed a little bit. I was getting busy with work towards the end and then COVID hit and then suddenly he turned eight years old and he's just not moving and jumping the way he used to do. And I'm kind of thinking yeah. like, even though he enjoys the work and he really gets off on it, he really, he really loves it. It's just not something that I just believe he's ready to go in. We were late coming into it too. Like he was three and a half, I think by the time we kicked off with PSA. So, you know, he was pretty late coming into the game. That doesn't mean a lot if you get, like a steady flow at it. Like if you get a good run at it. Yeah. If there's multiple trials, right. like when there's 10 trials a year that you can go at starting at three is probably preferable. You can get them fully ready and then keep going. But at one a year, that's challenging. To be honest, that's why it struggles in smaller countries where there just isn't huge options. You know, like when you've got it in the States where there's multiple clubs all spread right across that, like you can literally travel a couple of hours and there's a PSA trial on the next month. Now they're kicking off in Canada as well. And even for them, they can just jump the border if they want to and start yeah. trialing their dogs. It's easier. There's always a way around it. And Jerry and Janet were very kind to dub me as an honorary judge for PSA 1, which we are looking at doing at some stage, I think. I think we've got probably a handful of dogs. Yeah, mate, just waiting on a date. Yep, we'll make a date. And, you know, I think we've got a handful of dogs around the country that are probably ready to... Yeah, there's a bunch. There's mm. a bunch of dogs. So there's our club and there's a bunch of people all around the place that are keep hitting me up, want a trial, they at least want to do that PDC. That so doesn't help you with your PSA No, two? it doesn't help me with the two, no. Mm. But the more people we can get through that, the more worthwhile when we bring out a judge that can do the twos for me, there's more people in the twos. That's so right. That's the plan anyway. Yep. Let's move on these questions. Mm, indeed. So after Joe Rosie's, we had Kelly Wolf, who says, talk about the business side of dog training and the industry thoughts on business and program structure, et cetera, for suitable businesses. I reckon that's a you one, Glenn, because I'm terrible at business. <laughs> There's multiple streams of how a business would go down. I mean, if you're looking at something like a board and train option, it depends on what you want to do. Like there's a lot of different avenues that you can get into dog training. You can do multiple things where you can do group classes, some board and train, private lessons, or you can just purely focus on private lessons, or you can just purely focus on board and trains, whatever it is that you want to do. I think it's like anything. And we covered off a pretty good chunk of what we thought were the minimum standards of being a dog trainer last week. And Mm. I I think it really helps. And let me rephrase here for a second. I've seen people who have very, very low dog training skills, but they're 
extremely talented at marketing. They're extremely Mm. talented at doing taxes and accounting and things that that's not my wheelhouse, but they're extremely talented doing those sort of things. So they combine those talents and they seem to have enough knowledge. Like you said, they get a box set. They have enough knowledge to be dangerous, to get themselves together. They convince the clients they're good. Sometimes when the clients get them out there, they don't know what they don't know. So they think, oh, well, this is dog training. In some cases, these people, even though they're not that great a dog trainer, they're not really doing any harm either. So they get referrals, they get more people coming in, and they really push hard on that marketing experience that they have. They just know how to do it. They know how to work the social medias. They know how to pretty their website up. They even know how to groom themselves. They know how to have that confident persona. So they sort of develop themselves. Regardless of what I'm talking about here, in order to be successful, whether you're a talented dog trainer or not, that's exactly the way to do it. Like I just gave you the ballpoint of how it needs to be done. A lot of times where I see people don't do well, even if they are talented dog trainers, they're not confident enough. They don't Mm. back themselves. I've met a ton of people who have been out there and they've dipped their toe in the water and they leave it soon after. And one of the reasons why they leave it is because they don't like talking to people. And, (laughs) and, you know, we get people in the NDTF who are really, really scared of public speaking, but a part of that, a big part of that course is public speaking. You've got to get up, you've got to present, you've got to teach fellow students how to do things. We go through work health and safety. We do like equipment. So you've got to talk about equipment, how to fit it, how to look through it, how to identify faults, all sorts of things like that. So they've got to get up in front of the class and say, this is how you do it. They've got to talk about, like I said, work health and safety. They've got to talk about fire extinguishers, first aid kits, marshalling areas. And then they've got to talk about amenities available. And then they've got to talk about the teaching components of what they're doing, like a a teaching phase exercise and a training phase exercise. And some of them really find that incredibly stressful. Like they get up Mm. there and they say, oh, this is terrible. As I've said to them, I said, this is dog training. Public speaking happens whether you're doing it with one person or whether you're doing it with 10 people. I said, I know as the crowd grows, it gets more and more difficult because it's not so much a one set of eyes on you. It's now 10 to 20 sets of eyes. And I said, when you're looking across, all of a sudden you realize I'm one person and I've got 20 people out here. So there's that. And then there's the, as I said before, it's making sure that you do have a good structure and a good business plan, that you also know what your audience is, what their disposable income is, where you're going to field from, who you're working through, because there's a dragnet of other trainers around you at the time as well, and what your points Mm -hmm. of difference are. And sometimes they might be minimal, but they still can be some that you can offer clients. I guess what people need to do is when they look you up or when they get a referral from you, and most people will do a little bit of online analysis on who you are, they kind of want to know, do I trust this guy with a family member? Or do I trust mm-hmm. this lady to come into my home and do some training? And they're the sort of things that you need really need to work on to be successful in business. You need to be confident. You need to have your affairs in order. So that means all your financial modeling. That doesn't mean that you have to spend a squillion dollars to do that. Like you can just speak to your local accountant They'll help you do like a little bit of a field survey of saying, okay, this is what we want to set up. This is the assets that I have. And, you know, things as assets would be a suitable car to be traveling around in. The gear that you need. So you might be wearing a trainer's vest or treat pouches and clickers and balls and saleable items. You've got to work out whether that's something you want to do or is it something you want to add on down the track. So there are multiple different revenue streams of how you could look at incorporating that into your business. But as I said before, one of the big things, one of the really, really 
enormous issues is people's lack of confidence, mm. not facilitating themselves enough to say, I'm confident, I can do this, I am capable, I'm proven, and liking people really does help. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Thinking as you were talking then, like on the business side of things, I think some advice I can give people is don't put your name in the business. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that a lot of people do in dog training. It's certainly what I did at the start, but it makes the business really difficult to scale, right? Like it's Or to sell a bit saleable. Yeah, total like impossible to sell and difficult to scale. I always use the example. I had a friend who's a really good photographer, Michael Martin's his name, right? And it was Michael Martin photos. And then as they got really big and he's employing people who are as good or better than him. And when you book Michael Martin photos and Michael Martin doesn't turn up, you're Mm. like, what the fuck, right? So he had to change the name of the business to MM photos so that people weren't surprised when somebody else turned up to do the photos of their wedding. I think that's a, you know, definitely something worth keeping in mind. It's hard to scale and it's impossible to sell when the business relies on your name, keeping that out of it as much as possible. I think the other thing as well is like most people that come into dog training to start their own business tend to do that through the path that we've discussed heaps of times, the hobby, jobby job, Mm. right? One of the things you find is as a hobby, you can be extremely picky about the types of things that you take on because what difference does it make, right? It's just for your own fun. And then as a jobby, you sort of have that opportunity as well. But when it's a job, you kind of don't. Mm. And one of the things I think is really tricky is that like most of the in-home behavior mod stuff tends to be difficult dogs. When people are going to go to a group class or they're going to go to a facility, that's where you get like, I just want the dog trained, right? People will send the dog away to be trained and comes back, you know, he's got a recall, sit, a stay, all, all that kind of shit. But I think for the most part, when people are calling you to come out to their house, it's an aggression case or reactivity or, you know, some sort of management problem. And I think one of the tricky parts that I found when I was doing a lot of that is there's very much a ceiling on how much money you can make because you just can't have that many clients, especially like if you're driving around, you've got to fit into when they're available. So you're going to work weird hours, which is fine when you're doing the jobby because you're probably working your own job anyway. So like weird hours kind of suits you. But then when you try and make it your full-time job, that's one of the things that I found. Like people are like, oh, can you come at Tuesday at 8 p.m.? And I'm like, no, I don't want to come at Tuesday at 8 p.m. I want to to be there at 9 a.m., right? Like this is my job now. I want to work nine to five. And like that just tends not to work very well. But I think as well, for me anyway, when you've got like a complex aggression case or like, you know, a dog that requires a lot of management, I personally find that I can only have four or five of those on the go. Like I can't have many more than that and be effective with them and give the people, give the client, you know, not just the dog client, but the human client, the interaction that they need. And one of the issues that I always found as well is when you're doing those kind of in-home behavior mod stuff, it's really hard to set a session time as well. Like, you know, you might sell your time, you might sell an hour of your time and say to people, yeah, you know, this is going to be whatever my hourly rate is. I'm going to be there for an hour. But if you're mid problem with an aggressive dog, when the bell goes off, it's not like you can just hand them the leash and be like, well, I'm out of here. So you later, good luck. Right. Mm. Like, so there's, there's an element of like, what I found was when I was dealing with a lot of those kind of dogs, I could have a morning client and an afternoon client. And that was kind of it. I found that I couldn't really commit to doing more than that because sessions didn't go for the hour that they were meant to. And then there's the travel in between. And yeah, it was just really limited in my capacity to effectively guide, mentor, whatever the word is, help people get through that kind of dog effectively. And 
The other thing that I think I didn't realize about coming into the business side of dog training is how much you are in people's lives. That for sure was a shock to me. I didn't realize how invested in people's lives you ended up being, right? Because you're in their home. Usually it's their lifestyle that has caused the problem with the dog. And that's one of the things that I didn't expect, like having to be so involved with people. You know, and I like people. I'm not one of the dog trainers that's like, I only want to train the dog. I don't want to deal with the people. Mm. But you know, when you find yourself having to like do the therapy session for the family, it's like, oh, okay, this is my job now. This is what I do. turns out that I'm a counselor, not just a dog trainer. Well, in a way, it's kind of like a therapy session because you're actually getting them to be as honest as they possibly can about the things that they fucked up along the way. That can be confronting sometimes. And people do want to kind of disguise that. People can be very secretive, like they want you to see the image, and that was the image that I was talking about before, is we've all got multiple personas. When you're with people, who was it that we spoke to in the ICP conference many years ago? It was Dr. Ian Dunbar that was talking about his public persona versus his mm. private persona. We've all got these multiple personalities, the personality that our close friends and family or our spouse and our tight-knit family see, like that's us, the actor mm-hmm. that goes out and acts, our general public persona, the one that is looking for gratitude and popularity, that's a different side of you. That's not always who you are. It's part of you. Mm-hmm. It's like that old Aztec or Indian god that has three faces that turn and it's a different persona all the time. And that mm-hmm. very much happens. And when you're kind of exposed because the dog or the kid has outed you, that can be confronting for people sometimes. They don't really mm-hmm. want to tell you. That's a skill in being a dog trainer as well, is fighting through the bullshit. Like a lot of people have a bullshit story invested, you know, like they've got this, yeah, the, yeah. The, the front story. I did this thing many, many years ago called the Landmark Forum, and they call it a racket. When you're telling a story, somebody up the front will be judging you and they'll go, yeah, man, that's just your fucking racket. And a racket is something that you have, like, let's say you've got a laundry out the front and you've got a gambling den in the background, or you're doing a drug den or something like that. Mm. Because that's your racket. That's what you're really doing. What you've got out the front is just the front. It's the story that you want to tell. Oh, yeah, I'm a legit business. But behind, like you're cooking the books and you're doing all the all the naughty stuff. Well, people have that as a personality as well. So as a dog yeah. trainer and as part of your skill set, you've got to sit down and go, all right, that's the story that you want to tell me. Now, what's the real story? And that's uh-huh. where you can start seeing people like they look like a method. Sometimes they start picking their skin and, you know, they're getting really twitchy and really agitated. Once they realize, and this is part of the skill set of being a trainer, a good trainer, is that you can relax them and say, hey, man, I'm actually here to help. I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to go and Mm. tell people this is a private session between you and me. Like, I'm your ally. I'm your aid. Like, it took me a little while to develop that skill set where I could get people to relax, where I could get them to shed their skin and show you their soft underbelly. Some people, they feel, oh, this is dangerous. Like showing this to people is, you know, like I don't want them to see this side of me because this is the side where I fuck the dog up. So in situations like that, it's not like it's irreversible or the damage is just done and it's permanent. It's just that together you have to have an honest and true conversation. So even as part of a business, like people might think, what has that got to do with the business side of things? In order to be successful in business, you know, like if you talk about the financial side, you've got to be decent at it or you've got to have a decent team or a decent accounting firm or a decent package that deals with that side of it. And then you've also got to have a decent skill set behind you to make it work properly and have sustainability in it. Good points. 
know, I was thinking as well, while we're talking then about social media for dog trainers. And I know like from these same topics that people asked us to speak about, we spoke quite a lot about dog, about social media, you know, weeks ago, mm. but I think that's one of the really tricky parts about having a in-home small dog training business where it's just you or, you know, you and one other, something like that, what to post and how to post. It's really tricky. There's people who's job this is, is to teach that, just that side of things to dog trainers in the industry, we really should consider getting some of those people on and, and you know, getting them to explain some of their stuff to our audience. Because I think that's really tricky, like, you know, posting relevant things that can help business-wise and actually promote the product that you sell, which is that in-home behavior mod stuff. I think that creating controversy and like, as we discussed last time, like having a really big following is probably not very helpful for a lot of like small dog training businesses. In fact, it's probably counterintuitive. You're sort of dealing with an audience that can't give you anything. So having a really targeted message and really targeted approach to social media where you're showing like, these are the services that we have and having a, an Instagram or whatever that you put a fair amount of work into developing it as a resource for clients to look at and get an idea of who you are rather than look, here's a cute dog or look, here's me doing something instead of that kind of stuff. I think when you're starting a dog training business, it's worth developing a catalog of videos and pictures and whatever else of like, these are my skill sets. These are what we do. Like these are the things that we can offer you mm. and treating your, treating your social media page rather than a, a big form of engagement where you want to create conversation and, and that kind of stuff, or just get lots of likes and shit like that have it more as a landing page for these are my skill sets. These are the services we offer. It's because you know, one of the things I think everybody does these days, like most people don't, shouldn't say most people, I can speak for myself, but I hardly ever look at people's websites. Hardly ever. You'll check that they have a website, but for the most part, you go to people's social media and you have a look at like, what's going on here? Like, who are they? And you can check them out on a couple of different platforms. If someone's asked me, like, do you know this person? I don't check their website because that's a hundred percent like curated, right? Like, so I go to their, I go to their social media because I want to get a better feel of who they are. Mm. So I think putting the work into your social media page and, and having that in mind of being, this is to attract clients and this is to showcase a skill set rather than to, this is to, to farm likes, unless you want to farm likes because there's value in doing that, but that's a different business altogether. Yep. Right. So like if you have an online product or if you want to do sponsored posts, that kind of stuff, there's people, mate, there's people in the industry that make their living entirely off of Instagram, you know, and there's plenty of people who are dog world influencers that are selling fucking beds and all kinds of stupid other products through their Instagram <laughs> and, you know, power to them because they put the work in to develop a couple of hundred thousand followers on a platform like that. That doesn't happen overnight and it doesn't happen by accident either. Right. So like, acknowledge, like I, I acknowledge that that is a viable business that some people have put a lot of work into cultivating, but I think that's a different thing to being a dog trainer. Like that's a different thing to providing a service of being hands-on with a dog, like selling lifestyle online is a really different thing. And I think that a lot of people who are actual hands-on dog trainers fall into the trap of wanting to sell lifestyle online where really you got to remember that you're selling a physical service. Like it's a physical thing that you have to provide and your capacity to do that is local. So you're developing a huge international audience that will give you likes is probably not super helpful. Like, of course, it's not a bad thing to have, but it's probably not a good investment in your efforts. Mm. Listening to you talking about Instagram and social media before, I look at some of the Instagram posts that some of the other dog trainers put up from around the world, and I think to myself, these people must be exhausted trying to maintain that image and that persona because 
sometimes it's not even about training dogs. It's literally about dancing to a TikTok song or something like that. Well, they've got all these graphics popping up all over the screen. I just think to myself, how do you fucking have time to do all that? Yeah. Unfortunately, it works. Well, <laughs> there, must, so, there must be some good long waits in between dog training to be able to have time to do all that. Because I just look at it and go, that's a lot of effort to be able to coordinate that and get all the dance moves happening. And it's pretty out there. You know, what's interesting on Instagram is the amount, like there's this weird subculture on Instagram of fur baby mummies that cut each other down and give each other really mean advice. So I had a family member a while ago, get a dog and start a Instagram for the dog. As you do, they put up a video of him eating and, you know, he's eating raw food and then someone's into them about that. And, you know, like my family members are 14. And so getting DMS from people saying you shouldn't be doing this kind of thing. It's pretty upsetting. There's this weird subculture of people that give not just I don't even want to call it advice, but demand you treat your dog in a particular way that they've decided is the right way to do it. It's a crazy, it's a crazy world. And there's these kind of circles of like these clicks of, of people that follow each other and, and back each other up in the arguments that they start online and all that kind of shit. Like I just stay away from it, but it's interesting. It's a, a weird subculture in our industry and it's very seldom people who are actually in our industry, like who actually know what they're talking about. Mm. Like the people that are getting involved in that and they, they have like a million stories every day that is like all these different things looking to start drama with everybody. Very seldom do they actually have any clue what they're doing, but they offer up a lot of advice. All right. Next question is from Wakeman Crystal says perspectives, how we view dogs and how each trainer sees dogs differently and why everyone's contribution is interesting. Getting out of a right and wrong thinking. That highlights the old chestnut that keeps coming up. And it's one that I had a good laugh with the students about the other day is that the only thing that two dog trainers agree on is what the third dog trainer is doing wrong. And that really cycles around quite a lot. And a lot of times, it's probably a discussion point that we've had many, many times in different forums and formats. And it's a conversation that it's very generational. It leaps generations all the time because new people come into the industry and they go, why are people like that? Why do they all... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> one, one person will come up with a perfectly good diagnosis, but then there's another person, you know, it's like a room of scientists where somebody else will come up and go, well, just there's a couple of things that I think you should know. Sometimes I've been in some of those good discussions and there is validation there. Like somebody will see something different and we're all looking at different angles. We all see things from different eyes and experiences definitely have merit, but there's also just times where validation comes into it. It can be perspective, but it's also validation. I just need to speak. I need to be relevant and I need to say something so that all the people here that came to look at this assessment of a dog, there wasn't just one person giving a great explanation. I got to say something too. So I got to jump on the tail end of it and steer the attention back onto me. So there have been multiple times where that's happened. It happens a lot on forums. There's a lot of times where I've seen things on forums and I've read a lot of responses and replies from people and I thought, That's exactly what the person said before you who literally was a carbon copy of the other person that said something before them of the original post. And it's just that they use phrasing and that could be education as well. Like it could be a part of their education that some of the 
tones and inflections that people are using to describe something. It doesn't really resonate with them. They don't understand it. As I said, it can be an educational process. So then they try and analyze it through whatever. If Let's say, for example, I'm not being disrespectful, but let's say they have a limitation in education. They might be looking at it from a perspective of this is the way that I understand it and this is the way that I feel it should be explained. So with different groups of people, that can actually hold water as well because some people are more on board with what the first explanation was and then you have a generation of people who are more on board with what the second explanation is. It's like that saying many roads lead to Rome. There are many different ways of explaining it which all lead to the same outcome. I've, yeah. I've seen pragmatic training principles where, and again, I know this is a topic that we have dug up before, but I have seen people that have trained a dog for a competition with one group of people, and I've seen another group train a dog, and I look at them and I think, oh, that's not quite right. That's not the way that I would do it. And yet the dog still enters the trial and the dog does well in the trial. So mm. for some reason, that trainer-handler-dog team did well, whereas the trainer handler dog team that are working with you or the decoy or the team that you know, they know how to do it well under their system. So I guess the only time where you could look at it and say it's entirely wrong is where it makes no sense on the outcome side of it. When it Mm. does come down to some form of practical demonstration, we were discussing last week with Joe Rosie, if it's an academic process, which the handler or the decoy or the person is responsible for, the only real side that you can measure that is when it's demonstrated. That's where you can see a system falling apart. That's where you can see things going really wrong because there is no measure. There's no competency. There's no evidence to look at it and say, I can see that it's very transparent. Well, I guess that summarizes it. It's very transparent. You can see what's going on and it achieved all the key marks that it was supposed to. You know, something I was thinking about this actually just earlier today, I was thinking about the conversation we had with Joe Rosie, and, and it does kind of fit into this is Wakeman says why everyone's contribution is interesting. And, and I have to sort of say, I don't agree with that. I think that not everyone's contribution to everything is interesting or worth even paying attention to. I think about this, especially in regards to people who don't have an understanding of something that they have a big opinion about looking through social media earlier today and there's people carrying on about banning of various things, you know, like you can see in Queensland at the moment, it's on the cards to try and ban e-collars and prong collars and that kind of stuff. Well, someone's people are pushing for it. It's getting some media attention. There's some trainer on there. I don't know who she is. And she's saying how they're terrible and they make dogs aggressive and they're horrible tools. And then she is seen with her dog or a dog, I presume it's hers. That's first of all, obese and is dragging her along on the leash. And she kind of like has to, carefully not too obviously but pulls it back a couple of times right like by its flat collar and so the issue is her opinion on prong collars is not interesting to me it's not something that i think that i need to give any credence to and i think before like it's fine to have an opinion but before it's interesting to me or 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 should be taken seriously i think that we need to hear people explain the mechanism by which something works. So let's stick with that example. If we're going to talk prong collars and, and there's people that want them banned. If people say, you know, prong collars are terrible, they make a dog aggressive. I agree. They can certainly make a dog aggressive. You can make mm. a dog anything, but I want to hear people tell me the mechanism by which that can happen. I want someone to explain exactly how a prong collar works. I, I want to know exactly how it's to be fit. So if someone could tell me, this is a prong collar, this is how it works, this is how you fit it, 
and these are the way that it would be used in order to, you know, and how things would go bad. Describe for me in detail a session and how that session would go that it would result in a dog becoming aggressive. If you can explain that to me, then your opinion is is interesting to me and relevant. Mm. But I think when people just start throwing out, oh, well, they're terrible. I'm like, well, you don't actually know what you're talking about. And that that's your opinion and you're very entitled to it, but it's not relevant. It's not interesting to me. And I don't think that we should put much weight into your opinion if we're going to be deciding on how we proceed when we're taking the opinions of people who do know what they're saying. It's not just in our industry. It's kind of everywhere that since 2020, it's kind of been the death of expertise. I don't know if you've noticed that, like where people who are actual experts in things, you know, your lifelong study in something is irrelevant because I hold a strong opinion about it, right? Yes. I, have big, I have big feelings about that. I have no research. I don't actually know what I'm talking about, but you know, I have a strong opinion on it. So therefore, my opinion is worth the same as your opinion because we're just two people. And it's like, well, no. Because, you know, I ha- yeah, in, in, in certain instances, people are like, well, no, I have a PhD in this. I'm very well studied. This is my field of expertise. This is my day job. And especially, you know, when people say, do your research, it's like, like I literally did the research. Like <laughs> I'm in the lab. I'm not reading Karen's post on Facebook. That's one of the issues that I think has become really popular in everything is that we think that everybody's opinion holds the same weight and they just don't. They just don't. And for us in the dog training space, I think that when someone wants to say they have a strong opinion on something and you know that opinion is that they don't like something, that's totally fine. You can absolutely hold that opinion. But for me to be interested in why you might hold that opinion, I need to first confirm that you've actually thought that through. Mm. Like I need some evidence and you can provide it to me very easily. Just explain to me your thought process. And when you say, well, because of like I, I've weighed the balance of evidence and I've decided that this is how I feel about it, then I'm like, that's totally fine. And, you know, I know dog trainers. I respect many dog trainers who fall into that category with, say, prong collars, right, who say, well, you know, I don't see the need for, for the way that I work dogs and because of the access to the dogs that I have and the end product of what those dogs are going to be and blah, blah, blah. When they can say, I have made the choice because I don't think it's necessary. And therefore, I think other people would be able to make these same choices, given that they have the same education as me. I think the prong collars should not be used. Then I think that's a really interesting opinion. And I'm very interested in that. And, and I want to I want to have a back and forth with that person. And in the end, I'm happy for us to agree to disagree and carry on with our lives and continue being friends. Mm. But when someone says, no, they're terrible. And I say, okay, okay. But like, tell me about the times you've used it or you've seen it personally or the mechanism by which all the problems that you're explaining, like, tell me how that would actually unfold. Not just that it's terrible, but I want to know, like, what is the sequence of events that would lead to that? And if you can explain all that, cool. But if you can't, then I'm just not interested. I just don't want to hear it. And I think that's the problem that in our industry, there's just not enough discourse of that type. There's just not enough people who can hold their shit together be level-headed and have a back and forth and say, hit me with your point. Okay. I'll take that in and I'll listen instead of just waiting for my turn to speak. And then I'll be like, I'll ruminate on the thing that you said. And then I'll consider how that fits in with the information I have. And maybe you have new information that I didn't have, or maybe now I get an opportunity to offer you a new perspective that you perhaps didn't have. And maybe we steer each other on a different course very slightly, or maybe afterwards we shake hands and we say, no, I totally don't agree with you because of my lived experience. You hold an opinion because of your lived experience. That's fine. We can continue to be friends, but we're just going to do things differently. Mm. That's totally fine. 
But it's when people just are like, no, I have no education on this, but I have a strong opinion. I'm like, I don't care about your strong opinion on that. I just don't. I just am not interested in hearing it. I saw a meme on that the other day where somebody went into a doctor's office. The doctor basically said, okay, it's this. And the person goes, I don't believe you. I want a second opinion. So he opens up his laptop and gets Google there. And I I just thought that was hysterical because that's literally what people are doing these days. And you're exactly right. I have seen those arguments on trainer tools and dog breeds and all sorts of things. I mean, being in the industry for over 30 years, you watch a lot of evolutions take place and revolutions take place in things that are happening. You made a comment a long time ago. I know it's an industry comment or even just a phrase that's been echoed around in different industries as well, which is everything old is new again. And Mm. so too are a lot of the arguments. The problem is I touched on the point of validation before and there's a lot of validation and people feel very empowered and very powerful when they get involved in that cyclical shit talking group where they're all patting each other on the back and there's a lot of them and they're whipping each other up into a frenzy of fear and hatred. The problem for that is that a lot of that is very motivational. It motivates people They feel like they've educated each other. They feel like they've validated each other. That sees epic growth, which is terrifying. That's the part of it which is really, really terrifying is how bias and ignorance can go twice around the world before truth gets out of bed. But it's the same sort of thing with many of these things. Like somebody will have a strong enough opinion. They'll get up on their soapbox. They'll core about it and say, this is what I think. I hate this. It's evil. It's cruel. Anybody who uses it as a cruel person, why would you want to do that? How could you put this on your poor little fur baby and call yourself a good person? And that automatically starts making people think, well, I don't want to be that type of person. I don't want to be cruel or I don't want to be some form of a, a training bigot or anything like that. I don't want to be involved in that world. Even when you get somebody who's very logical and has a great science-backed approach to it, they're automatically cut down. Like they're automatically stripped of any recognition because people just go, no, I don't want to hear it. And that's the problem is their ears become deaf to the facts or at least to an education, the potential of an, an education. And that's what scares me about some of the general public sometimes. They become so deafened because the room is really screaming and it's very loud with all these different biases And again, we touched on perspective before. Perspective can be very odd sometimes. The way you can have a conversation with people, I've spoken to people over many, many years. I mean, I've met some really crazy people before who have a perspective that they're a good, solid, upstanding citizen in the world, but they're not. That's Mm. just a matter of fact. And a lot of these are involved in equipment arguments. They're just, they're not saying what they're talking about. Like the conversation is insane. It's just not Mm. right. It's not correct. But they'll fight to the bitter end to defend it because sometimes they just think, well, to steal the phrase that you've used a few times, that's the hill I'm going to die on and I'm prepared to do so. Mm. How much effort do you really want to put on it before you just go next and move on and try and hopefully find a tribe of people who are not so much like-minded? I'm skeptical about getting involved in too much like-mindedness. I do like to be amongst people who are curious and who are investigatory. I'm not really interested in people becoming minions of each other. I think that's a an attack on your own intelligence when you're too afraid to ask questions or you're too afraid to look deeply into things or become part of a discussion group. I think that's nice when 
you know, like even if you've got some elders or peers or more educated people in there, but the people that your tribe forms a part of, it can still be a good collaboration of people who love to have an intelligent conversation then would consider everything. Like they look at the facts or they look at some of the stories that are going around about it and then they try and get to the truth, whatever that is. Mm. You know, like try and establish a network of truth rather than just fear-mongering and spreading misinformation about whatever topic it may be, the breed of the dog, the training tool that you're using, the training technique that you're doing. And sometimes when you really get down to the nitty-gritty of it, when it really comes down to the brass tacks of why this is happening, it's some form of fear in the person themselves. They're afraid of something. They're afraid of losing face. They're afraid of looking stupid. They're afraid to say sorry or they're afraid to say, I don't have all the answers. And I can speak on experience. I can draw from experience where that has happened before. And it was like that lure coursing comment that I made a while ago where I kind of thought I've gone too far. I can't stop. Like I really have to maintain this image that I'm an expert on lure coursing, even though it was just embarrassing. It was foolish to have that conversation in amongst people who were peers of that industry who did know how to train it really well. Automatically, I could just imagine them all sitting there smiling together thinking, this guy's fucked. Like he's really dug that super deep hole and he's just gone to get a jackhammer so he can keep going further through the bedrock. Literally, that's what I did. But I see people <laughs> I see people do that on such a regular basis and I just think, you poor, ignorant fool. Like you just don't know where you're going with this, but you're so determined to get there that instead of just saying, hey, man, I've made a wrong turn somewhere along the line, this has gone wrong. How do I rectify? Help me out here. Throw me a line. What can I do to fix this situation? Because it's getting pretty fucking out of control. I think what you said before about the real industry experts, it's like in Step Brothers where people just say, shut your mouth. You're coming off stupid now. And, yeah. and you're thinking, <laughs> you're saying that to me? You've got like five minutes. You literally gained your dog training license by shaking a Wheaties packet and it fell out and it just said, congratulations, today you're a trainer. Well, well no, mate, it. it's more complicated than that because there's people who have PhDs that say this stuff, right? That's the issue. So they're like, there's, you know, there's people with PhDs that say punishment doesn't work or you should never use punishment on a dog. And, and when they say that, then it's like, oh, okay, but what level of indoctrination got you to say that? And, you know, this runs counter to the argument that I just said, where I'm saying like these people have PhDs and it's lifelong study and you're just some Jono. In this instance, I'm the Jono, right? Yeah. But at that point I have to be like, no, but that's what I mean. In order for you to tell me that if you're going to say punishment causes whatever and, and using this kind of tool, whatever, if you're going to make bold statements like that, that's fine. And I'm, I'm totally okay with it. But we then have to tease out how you got to that point of thinking. And if it says, well, my teacher told me, like, that's not good enough for me. That doesn't cut it. If you're going to say, you know, like make a bold claim and tell me how I should be doing my job, that's fine. I only want to be good at my job. That's all I want to do. But if in order for me to, to be able to take what you're saying on board, I need you to explain to me why that's the case. And just very often it's just, well, it just is. And you wouldn't understand. It's like, no, I really do understand. I really do understand this stuff. I need you to tease this out for me because if I'm wrong, I want to change, but I need you to convince me that I'm wrong. You just saying it like that isn't going to cut it. I may have read this in the past. I think I have in a much earlier episode, but it's something that I think about a lot. It's a, I believe it's an Arabic proverb. And when you were bringing up that point, this kept just flowing through my mind. So I just want to read it out. It's something that Boyd showed me many, many years ago. He used to have this thing of it sitting on his desk. And it says, he who knows not and knows not he knows not is a fool. Shun him. 
He who knows not and knows he knows not, he is simple, teach him. He who knows and knows not he knows, he is asleep, wake him. He who knows and knows he knows, he is wise, follow him. Mm, it's a good one. It is a good one. As I said before, when you were having that conversation and just bits and pieces of the conversation that we've had in and out of this whole thing, that made me think about that because people do fit in a lot of those categories. Sometimes mm. people, they're ignorant, but they are in that real, they're in that apex of the Dunning-Kruger initial spike. They're just excited about some cherry-picked information they got and they think to themselves, well, I know a little bit about what I believe is a lot and I want to tell the world about it. I'm kind of stupidly excited about this and I really just want to go out there and sprinkle my new form magic dust all over people and have people turn around to me and go, holy shit, son, you're a fucking magician. Like, look at the tricks that you just pulled out of your (laughs) asshole. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Mm. All right, I'm moving on to the next Yeah, yeah, yeah. Harley Leach says, desexing as a whole, including pros and cons, health factors, behavioral and temperamental factors, as well as the difference and reasoning on desexing pet dogs to working and sport dogs, etc. We did kind of an episode on this, but that hasn't stopped us in the past talking about things five or six times. No, yeah. no problem. Yeah, we can, we can <laughs> dig up and rehash a lot of old material and retread it. I don't have strong opinions on this. I think that people should do whatever is going to be right for them. I think that overwhelmingly dogs are desexed more than not and probably somewhat unnecessarily. But I think for the average pet dog owner, it's kind of no big deal. Like I know that a lot of people in the industry are probably getting upset about that. But I think when you consider all the issues that the average pet dog owner, when you look at everything that they face and as an industry where we can try and collectively bring the lives of dogs forward... I think that desexing or not is not the hill that I'm interested in dying on. Like I just am not because a lot of people now culturally, you know, because so many dogs are desexed that they're just not used to the idea of a bitch being in heat every six months and, you know, having to, you know, either keep it outside or wear the diapers and all that kind of stuff. Like they're just not prepared to do that. Mm. And these are the people who don't pick up their dog shit at the park. Right. So like the chances of them being able to maintain, that and keep their dog away from another uh, a male dog and not have accidental pregnancies is just pretty low. There's a certain level of interest in dogs that you sort of crossed one day. And at that point, I think people then sort of realize for themselves, the weight of evidence is there. There's probably, you know, it's probably better to not have my dog desex than to assuming that, you know, all things being equal, it, I think it's a pretty obvious choice health wise you know, the biggest thing, and it's like we talked about before, for sure, you can't get cancer in an organ that you don't have. Like that is for sure. So if you don't want your dog to get testicular cancer, cancer, cut off his testicles. You don't want your dog to get ovarian cancer, cut out her ovaries. Like that's a fact. But then there's a bunch of other things that come of that. But like I say, when we consider the, when we weigh up the pros and cons, I think for the average pet owner, while I think that it's certainly better for their dog to not be desexed, it's just not something that I'm going to invest a lot of effort into trying to convince people not mm. to do, because I just don't think that the juice isn't worth the squeeze on that. Again, I, I'm no expert on it, but from what I understand, it's overwhelming. The evidence is don't desex dogs, especially young, right? I think that once they're fully mature, you hit a point of sort of diminishing return where like the, you know, it's going to have less of an impact and maybe you do, you know, eventually at some point or another, you do 
hit a point where you're like, well, the dog's fully grown, he's fully mature, he's elderly, and at this point, his chance of testicular cancer is much higher. So removing his testicles might actually go into the pros column instead of strictly as the cons. But I think it's really an individual choice. I just don't get that involved in the conversations. And I personally have one of each. Remy has his nuts on. He's never going to be bred, but there's no reason. I just can't see any reason to dissex him. It doesn't make any sense to me. And Valerie, we chose to dissex because uh, she had false pregnancies every single time that she went into heat and it was causing issues for her. I was worried about the health effects of that. So we chose to dissex her. But to be honest, I regret it. I regret having done it. I think that it did radically change her personality. It did radically change her body. I regret doing it, but not so much that it's like something that keeps me awake at night. In the overall scheme of that dog's life, she's still a very happy dog with a very, very happy life. Yeah, it's not an integral question like where do flies go to sleep at night or anything like that. (laughs) Exactly. I think it upsets people that this is like the common phrase or the common retort or rebuttal that most people have is that Karen did quite an in-depth conversation where she feels that she blew the whistle on the industry about the financial componentry that's pushing people to de-sex dogs. And she does talk about the morality behind it, but she also talks about the responsibility of people who do have entire dogs. And if you can't maintain that responsibility, then de-sexing is definitely an option for you. Look, I've had discussions, I've had debates, I've had breakdowns and unpackings of that conversation. I've even had some pretty heated arguments with people over it. Whereas with your endochromes, I think that's the proper descriptor of them. But with that, I'm not an expert in that. That's not a field that I have a lot of study on. Over many years of reading papers and listening to lectures and listening to veterinarians talk about it and even listening to doctors talking about it with things like pyometra and testicular cancers, you pointed out, prostate issues, and there's a range of issues that it could be related to them. And again, as I said, I'm not an expert, so there might be vets listening to this saying, oh, that's just the go-to of the town crier. For me, it didn't feel like it made sense. And she is a practicing veterinarian. Like she does have the credibility there to say, I've done study on it. I've researched, I've talked to people and peers in the industry. And the majority of people that we're talking about it, there's a problem about this. And it's probably a problem that people should be talking about and have a little bit more knowledge into it rather than just saying, like you could get testicular cancer, you need to have them off. There are a lot of dogs that are de-sexed out there. Many of them are in our boarding facilities. And I don't see any known problems that I would say is causing them a reduced life or anything like that. I don't know if they would live an extra couple of years if they had their testicles on or if they had their their uterus. Ovaries? Uterus. Is it? Well, it's the whole lot. They get rid of everything. So when they desex the male or female, once it's off, it's off. Or once it's out, it's out. So it's hard to tell what would happen if it was still on. Yeah, it's like testing a match. Yeah, they seem to be living a happy, normal, functional, healthy life, even though they're de-sexed. But then there's the report of, had they not have been on, maybe they wouldn't have had these severe problems later on in life. Maybe they wouldn't have had this health issue. I don't want to ramble on too much about this because the veterinary science behind it, I'm not an expert in that. When you do listen to people like Sapolsky talk about his new studies on testosterone, however, I think he's going down quite a deep rabbit hole on that. And now he's finding that testosterone is an amplifier of, you know, a certain type of behavior that you already had. Like it simply turns up a behavior. 
So sometimes people will go out and do it, especially with male dogs, because they believe that this is going to be a behavioral solution. I'll have the dog's nuts taken off because he's dog aggressive. Whereas if that study is correct, you might see a reduction in it, but what type of reduction? Or is this now an established behavior that you're still going to see? So Mm. I'm not the sort of person who would say to people, don't get your dog de-sexed. I would say, as you suggested before, consider it later. Allow the dog's hormonal and endocrinology system to develop correctly. Allow that dog to actually function fully as nature intended it to be. And then later in life, if that's doable, then have it done. However, on the flip side of that, not that I'm trying to consistently contradict myself by going backwards and forwards, But there are people that just, you know, like if they've got a multi-dog household and they've got a female that's coming into season and it's setting the males off in the house, creating escaping, creating fighting, and that could really threaten the dog's existence in the house or even, God forbid it, possible euthanasia, then I would say the kinder option of the two of them would definitely be de-sex the dog. Yeah, without doubt. Mm. It's too far outside of our warehouse to have strong opinions on. Yeah, I agree. Let's move on. Andy Lawrence wants to know about training a rescue dog. How do you introduce the dog to your home? How to start presenting structure to the dog, do's and don'ts, et cetera. That's the same for any dog. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to see what you were going to say. I was going to say the same thing. I just was like, I think that people just overthink rescue so bad, so much. Exactly. Right. Like you hear the word rescue being mentioned now. Like it's like some of those memes you see where a dog does something terrible and somebody goes, Oh, it's okay. He's a rescue. Yeah. Uh, Now when people put rescue in front of dogs, it's like, it's completely changed the fact that it's a dog, like it's no longer a dog. It's a dog with history. It's a rescue dog. Yeah. It's a dog with a dark side and this dark side needs to be exercised first before this rescue dog. I'm not trying to sound demeaning, but when you do enter into a conversation with rescue dog, I think really you've just got to take the word rescue out of it. The question needs to be, how do I integrate this adult dog into a house? Because a rescue dog Let's look at a a lot of reality for rescue dogs these days. Like if, for example, we were talking about rescue dogs that were being brought in for meat markets where these dogs are almost wild-like in their behaviour, and I know Jason Cohen and one of his colleagues is doing a lot of that, like some of these dogs can be severely messed up when they're coming over. Mm. So if you're asking me about that type of dog, I would say there's got to be a lot of considerable approach to working with a dog like that because that dog's had a really genuine traumatic start. It's probably been severely traumatised by a lack of socialisation. Even the lodgings where the dog was kept was probably very, very poor. I don't know. There are details around that. But when you look at rescue facilities these days, like a lot of rescues rely on foster. And when they're going into foster care situations, they're usually going in with experienced dog people. You know, we've had Dallas on and all sorts of people in the industry and just about every second or third student who does NDTF is a foster carer or somebody involved in in animal rescue. Mm -hmm. So these dogs aren't just sort of out in the boonies wandering around in the desert and then they get snatched up and brought in and put in someone's house. It's a dog that's been in somebody's home. They've been cared for. It might have gone in three or four homes, and, yeah, it's a little bit of a a situation. But I remember before the stigma of rescue dogs came on, I remember there was a discussion around foster kids. This was years ago. I was watching something, a documentary on TV, and somebody asked a guy, they said, how do you manage with your foster kid? And he said, it's my son, and that's the way Mm. I look at it. He's well-adjusted, and he 
he's happy. He calls us mum and dad. He's doing good in school now. He's had some issues. He wanted to know about his own parents. We've been totally transparent with that. But the short answer was they didn't treat him like he was an outsider. They didn't treat him like he was unwelcome or he was hostile or there was something wrong with him that he had to be ashamed of. They just removed the label of him being a foster kid, you know, into where your adopted parents now. You're in our home. We care about you. We love you. We want to be involved with you. We want to do all the integral things that a family do. And I really believe that if you're getting a rescue dog and it's coming into your home, just treat it in the same way. Just remove the label of it being rescue, call it a dog, and look at the things that add value to that dog's life. And that's the old question we always ask when we begin, and certainly with the Napopo School, why does a dog do what it does? Well, find its advantage. Help that dog Mm. find out how it fits in your lifestyle, how it's going to fit in your home. And if you need training or you need some behavioral advice, find the most relevant and capable person that can offer that to you. And I believe that you'll kick some major goals. That's my thoughts. Yeah. Matt, I agree. I, you know, rescue, again, it's something outside of my wheelhouse. It, yeah, the further we get into these questions, the less experienced I am with a lot of the things people are asking about. <laughs> so I've only had, you know, I wouldn't even call him a rescue. Jane's first dog, like when we first got together, Ernie, he was secondhand, but he was a private rehome, right? It was never, he was never in a rescue, but we got him out of the paper. Someone looking for, it's a funny story. We had this lease at this place. It was when I, you know, we'd first moved in together. And we had this one year lease at this place. It was perfect to get a dog. And we were kind of worried about the idea of like, you know, are we going to be allowed to stay here? We're going to be able to care for a dog after this. And when we were looking for a puppy in the trading post, remember like back in the day where that's where you actually Mm. got things from, like the physical paper, you had to spend $2 on every Thursday. You could buy it. And where Harley um, came from, Harley was a trading post. Oh, really? Yep. It was a trading post. Yeah. Trading post. So Ernie was available and someone was, they were just looking for someone to look after him for 12 months. It turned out that what he was, he was seven when we got him and the lady we got him from, she was a nurse and worked ridiculous hours and he was her daughter's dog and she had gone traveling, like, you know, going to travel around the world or whatever for 12 months and left Ernie with her. And he was extremely storm phobic and she was a nurse that worked sort of irregular hours and there was a, a big storm and she had him locked in the house and he smashed a window and jumped off a balcony and broke his leg in order to get to the neighbor's place. Cause he was so sort of storm phobic. And so that's when she decided, oh, okay, I can't, I can't look after my daughter's dog and just sort of outsource that. And we were stoked. We we're like, this is perfect because we got this, like, this is 12 months. This is great. We'll look after this dog for 12 months and give him back if, and when we have to leave. So anyway, our lease ended, the chick was still overseas. We moved to another place where we could keep him. So that was all fine. Eventually she came back and came to pick him up and he did the straight refusal. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, no, I'm not going. And it was this really awkward, you know, we're all standing there watching as she's got the leash around his neck, trying to drag him out of our house. And he just put the brakes on. I was like, no way, no fucking way. I'm not going. So she's like, oh, well, I guess he's your dog. And we kept him. Yeah, he was 15 when he died. Mm. So I've never had a rescue. He was a you know, a private rehome like that. But I've had lots of secondhand dogs, right? Because I get dogs come in. And I encourage people that when you bring any dog into your home, is the same way when I'm bringing a client dog into my home or a dog that I'm going to work on something with and, and sell or, you know, a dog I'm looking after for a friend or whatever. So just micromanage them. I just don't let them get into trouble because I don't know them. And I've got to like understand who they are bit by bit as they come into my house. And I think, you know, it's a fool's errand to just go, Hey, welcome to the house. Clip the leash is off and 
go do whatever you want, right? Because mm. then, like, of course, the dog's going to make a bunch. Like, the dog's going to do a bunch of stuff that you don't want him to do. And then you're going to find out what kind of personality does this dog have. And it's going to be a baptism by fire. With a puppy, if it comes into my house, then that's, you know, it has all the freedoms, that kind of stuff. But I'm not going to afford that to a secondhand dog in any way, shape, or form. If an adult dog is, or even adolescent dog is coming into my house, it's coming in under like total control and I'm going to let it earn the freedoms that it gets. And, and I don't mean earn as in like it has to do something to get it, but I'm going to give it to a very incrementally. And I think really that could be boiled down to just setting that dog up for success. That's all I want to do. Mm. Like I don't want to put a dog in a position where he's going to do something that seems like a good idea to him, but is going to require an education from me as to it being something he can't do. I would rather just for a long time anyway, not give the dog access to doing that thing. And hopefully, you know, he never does it, but at least by the time he does it, we're at a position where we have a relationship and he understands the rules of the house better. We've established boundaries and that kind of stuff so that I can, you know, I have a mechanism by which to communicate with that dog. Mm. That's relevant advice to whether it's a rescue or an adult or a foster or a board and train, you know, anything. I feel like that's the way to go. I don't care about the history of the dog. I only take, I mean, that's not fair to say. I only care about the history of the dog in so much as it's relevant to me. And if it's a rescue, then you often probably don't know the history of the dog. Like very often with some of the working dogs that I get my hands on, they've been passed around a fair bit. So you really, you might have a story, but it sure as hell isn't the real story, right? Like people aren't telling, haven't told you the truth on that dog. So I, you know, I just control them, just control them very slowly. They get access to things very controlled so that, I can set them up for success and slowly integrate them into the life that they'll ultimately have rather than just kind of baptism by fire. Huzzah, here it is. This is how you, I'm expecting you to figure this out. And if you don't, you'll be punished and you know, like that kind of shit. I just want to avoid that. I often see these good memes and clips when we're talking about some of this subject matter, they just pop into my mind as you, as you're chatting along. And there was a good one of Rafiki with Simba. And mm-hmm. Rafiki was the wise monkey, the baboon, I think, yeah, that was yeah. with him. And he bangs him on the head with a stick. And Simba goes, oh, that hurt. And he goes, well, don't worry about it. That's in the past. He said, yeah, but it still hurts. And he goes, ah, but that's the past catching up with you. And he goes, well, what's it going to feel like tomorrow? And he goes, but doesn't matter. That's the future. It's unwritten. We don't know. And yeah. I feel that a lot of times when people are like a fixated on what's the history of the dog, well, if that's unknown, there's no point in being fixated on it. I guess what I see with a lot of people is they try and come up with and establish this really interesting backstory. It's wrapped in an enigma and it's like it's this cauldron of secrecy and all these mysterious things that have happened to this dog. But really all it is, it's a lot of guesswork. So yeah. I think the thing that needs to be focused on is the present. Like what is the dog doing now? Like what can we see and what can we deal with And what can we work on that's going to give this dog a better future? So past, present, and future are really interesting concepts when you you come up with these things. And I agree that the past sometimes does catch up with you. But if you don't know what that is, it's got to be removed from the discussion point. What what you need to focus on is what can I do about this right now? And how can I establish a better network for me and this dog? So I don't have to worry about him being allegedly a bait dog that, you know, was wrapped in this box and it was going to be dropped down to the bottom of the sea for crocodiles to chase after or whatever. <laughs> but, the, you know, the elaboration of these stories get a little bit unreal and unrealistic sometimes. So, yeah, best advice, focus on the dog in front of you. What can you do? 
And if it's out of your depth sometimes and you need help, call in help. That's mm. really the best advice I can offer people. Yeah. Oof. I reckon that's the place to wrap it up. We're it, losing, we're having internet issues. It's yep. probably the time to cut, to cut her and off. And it's late. It's quarter to 10 at night. I know. I want to go to bed. Yeah. All right. Hey, that's it for another episode of the Canon Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Or if you're standing in traffic, get out of your car, <laughs> stand on the roof, start screaming. Hey, everybody, listen to the Canon Paradigm. Oh, you've just won a heart. Your fan is just going to I just be, do it for the I just do it for the people. Just do it for the last person. Yeah. What about the, the earbuds? Getting the earbuds out of the ears and like Yeah, put it in well if you're on the bus, that's yeah. what you should do. If you're on the bus, take your earbuds out, all like gross and covered in earwax and just stick it in the in the in the ear of the person next to you. Or they should, won't have any issue with that. Should you be polite and just lick it a bit and put a little bit of moistness on it and then like lube it up yeah, and then stick uh, it in their ear? Why not? Yeah, of course. Because that no always way. goes down well, especially in this post COVID society. Yeah. I was thinking actually one of the best ways to spread the message of the show is to go to like a theater or something like that, but take a, like a Bluetooth speaker Yep. and it, as the movie starts to start <laughs> blaring us talking and be, and then when people look at you like, shut up, be like, guys, have you heard about the canine paradigm? You should totally listen to it. Right? You, you guys should like, rate, share and subscribe everything they do. Imagine oh, getting yeah. that angry of audience of people coming over. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you here? All oh, right. because some <laughs> ruined my fucking movie for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's what they write on the discussion group. Yeah. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is Patreon. Jump into there. A few bucks a month gets you access to a giant backlog of information as well as new information mm-hmm. going forward. Mm-hmm. We do a live stream every month. You know, I put videos into there all the time, keeping it fresh in there. Join the community. Another way you can support the show is to buy yourself some cool merch. You can jump into Spring. There's a link to that probably in our discussion group somewhere. There is uh, on our Insta, buy... social media, everything. It's everywhere. Everywhere. You, you, you can't you can't miss it. Mm. You can buy yourself some socks, pants, t-shirts, tapestries, whatever you want. Can't go past the uh, tapestry. Want... That's just the sale can't point go, right there. Can't go past it. Yep. If you want to get in contact with us, jump into the discussion group on Facebook. That's all Facebook's good for these days, our discussion group. Yep. Everybody else is just waffling nonsense on there. That's exactly right. <laughs> if you want to get in contact with us directly, you can shoot us an email. We are info at the Goodbye.